Hey everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Roots of Alternative Podcast. My name is Jack, joined by Dixon. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? Fantastic. Now I'm really excited. Uh, after last week, uh, you know, I, I, I last week really got me excited for what's to come. Uh, and I went back. I listened to even more music for our year that we're doing today. And we're are, we're going to take a look at the year 1981 um, and uh, go over some of the biggest alternative songs from that year. If you're new to the podcast, uh, I recommend that you go back to last week's episode, our very first one, where we looked at the year 1980. Um, each week while we do this over the next 40 weeks, uh, or now 38 weeks, uh, we're following each year in order till we reach the year 2020. Uh, and just kind of seeing alternative music's roots. Hence the name. Yeah, and if you have any questions about who uh, who this crazy guy is and who I am, we'll we'll fill you in at the very beginning of episode one. If you want a little bit of a uh, a background check, so to speak, on either of us. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I do want to mention, you know, we love listeners from anywhere in the world because this is a podcast and you can find it anywhere. But we are based in Syracuse, New York. So throughout the podcast, you may hear a lot of references to Syracuse. That's because we want to give some love to our hometown here. So. Uh, without further ado, let's take a look at the year 1981. Now, Dixon, I want to start something new. We didn't do this last week. I want to start each episode now with kind of talking about, well, just mentioning a couple of major historical events for that year. Because if you lived it, a little bit of nostalgia piece to it, but also kind of recognizing that Music has a lot of connection to things that happen in the real world, uh, whether that be politically, artistically, whatever that may be. So uh, in the year 1981, Ronald Reagan was elected president. The space shuttle Columbia was the very first space shuttle launch that happened in April. Um, I found this kind of interesting. August 12th, IBM introduces its first personal computer. And then October 23rd, the U.S. national debt hit $1 trillion. So a little bit of- Pretty insane. Now, one, one very important historical factor in 1981, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was the first female appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, a banner day for women's rights in America with that one. Uh, also, uh, it was back in the day when you could get a stamp for 18 cents. Whew. How much does it- 18 cents. How much does it cost now? I think it's like a dollar. I mean, when's the last time you bought a stamp? I just use the machine at work. <laughs> that, that's true. Actually, I bought stamps for my, uh, for my uh, wedding uh, invitations last year, and we spent like, it was like, it had, it was like 80 bucks for all the stamps we had to buy. It was insane. A little crazy. Uh, some of the big movies from that year, Raiders of the Lost Ark, On Golden Pond, Superman 2, classics. Classics. And, and this was the era where, you started to see songs leak into your favorite movies, and I give a lot of that credit to John Hughes. And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, John Hughes, a legendary director. Some of our favorite movies like uh, Christmas Vacation, Home Alone, so many films. But we'll go deeper into those, maybe in another podcast. Who knows? So 1981, Dixon, uh, take us back here. You lived it. I wasn't even a glimmer in my parents' eye yet. Uh, I was eight. You were eight years old. Okay. All right. So I, I was. Mean, we're, how 
I guess the first question here to start it off, how into music were you at eight years old? At eight years old, I had a portable record player. I believe it was Fisher Price. And I also had a little box that we carried 45s in, which now the kids refer to as seven inches. Uh, and, you know, it was one of those things where, like, I wasn't a friendly kid. I wasn't super social. When I got put into awkward positions, I would just find a place to plug in my record player, put on my headphones, and that was that was my best friend was music at that point. And, you know, 1981 was uh, sort of my formative years. That was around the time that I first discovered uh, Parliament Funkadelic and Stax Record Artists. Uh, and that all started with my love and appreciation of Motown, uh, which had bled through the airwaves in Syracuse on the old WOLF, which was my second best friend because I had a little one-ear uh, sort of Walkman deal that was a transistor radio. Uh, so when I couldn't bring the record player, I would just tune in WOLF. And, you know, it's one of those things. I said this to Andrew McMahon a while ago when he and I were chatting. It's like a lot of times you look back on, on bad times of your life and realize that, like, there are songs and artists that help you through that a lot more than your real life friends do. You know, and for me, like, that's, I think, why I'm so nostalgic for uh, Motown and that neo soul sound of that era is it, it takes me back to when I first fell in love with music. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And uh, I mean, we all have that one song that reminds us of a time and place. And uh, I'm sure 1981 is going to be a year for, for you for that. So to kind of, well, I will say off, this a, a few of my favorite bands to this very day came to their initial success in 1981. Oh, really? couple of sneak peeks examples um, depeche mode duran duran and i know if you know me those are weird things to hear come out of my mouth but uh i think duran duran may be one of the most underrated artists of all time whether you want to call them rock or pop or brit pop or whatever it is uh duran duran in my opinion does not get their due for the impact they made on the world of music in general so let's take a look at our list. Uh, now, if you go up to our website, 95x.com slash roots of alternative, uh, every week when we post a new episode, you'll see a list uh, that you can actually even uh, download those songs and add them to your own playlist. Uh, you'll see a list of about 50 of the biggest songs of that year. So we're kind of taking those songs from the list. Um, you know, these were songs that were on the top of the charts uh, in the alternative genre. So Kind of based off that list, Dixon, uh, why, don't we, why don't you kick us off and uh, kind of talk about some of the big noteworthy songs uh, that really stand out to you? Well, for me, the one that stands the test of time, I think, is Pretty in Pink. It is from the Talk, Talk, Talk album that the Psychedelic First put out in 1980. Now, the version everybody's really familiar with actually isn't the version from Talk, Talk, Talk. It was actually re-recorded in 1985 for the release of the 1986 movie, Pretty in Pink, starring Molly Ringwald and that guy from Two and a Half Men. Molly Ringwald, she was in 16 Candles, right? Another John Hughes classic, man. Hey, I got it right. I actually know something. <laughs> and then think about that, man. Like, think about The Breakfast Club and that closing scene with Don't You Forget About Me. You know what I mean? Classic. Like, that's one of the most iconic pieces of American cinema, and it's tied to a very iconic old-school alternative track. And I think those are the same vibes we get from Pretty in Pink, which is, again, a, a standard for the, the entire movement of alternative music going forward. And you can still hear 
influences of bands like Psychedelic Furs in bands like Glass Animals or Tame Impala, where mm. it's not necessarily like the note for note playing, but the essence, the vibe, the overall electronic wash that you get with modern music like that started way back when, 39 years ago. So you just talked about electronic music, and I've got to mention one of my noteworthy songs that really stood out to me. Now, again, I don't know a lot about the early years. I only know a few, and a big part of this podcast would be learning that. Now, this is a band I had never heard of before called Kraftwerk, and one of the songs, oh, yeah. on, one of the songs on that list was uh, called Pocket Calculator and mm-hmm. Numbers. Uh, first of all, okay, as I'm listening through this whole list, I hear this song comes up and I hear a lot of beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, like a lot of like, like digital. Early electronic elements. Yes, yes. And I looked it up. I'm like, okay, first of all, who are these guys? And second of all, what is robot pop? Because apparently they kind of were the leaders in what we now define as electronic type music. I would say that they are 100% the foundation for what became the electronic music movement, which then morphed for a time into the industrial movement and then back to more of a club style. But I mean, all along the way, whether you're talking about like The Prodigy, which was very prominent in the late 90s and early 2000s, or if you want to go a little bit more obscure, I mean, there was an entire generation of bands in the, in the 90s, whether it was Nitzer Ab, Lords of Acid, KMFDM, that all drew from Kraftwerk's original blueprint for the genre. They just expanded upon it as time and technology progressed so that they had different sounds to work with and different mediums with which to record it and generate new sounds. Now, would you say that, because like one of, one of the sounds that you hear a lot in well, quote unquote 80s music is the synthesizer. Would you say that, well, to me, that it does kind of sound electronic in a way and you hear a lot of that synthesizer sound to, in today's alternative music. Would you say that that synthesizer type sound is uh, like part of that electronic elements or is it just its own thing i think there's there's elements that lead it down both paths i think it's uh in the situation of certain bands like Kraftwerk, it's clearly defining of a time um while at the same time like when you look at things as strange and opposite spectrum as like nine inch nails and reggie in the full effect who both bring elements of what Kraftwerk started to the table in the modern day, they're at completely different ends of the same spectrum. And, and I think that's what the synthesizer brought to the table was the ability to create inorganic sounds. And I love guitar rock as much as the next guy, but we go through these cycles in, in the sixties and seventies were one of those cycles, like the nineties and early two thousands where pop music and the culture around rock was very guitar oriented. And as we're seeing now in 2020, Bands like the Foo Fighters and Muse fade into the background as new artists that are using modern means to communicate their musical vision into the world are coming to the forefront. And that's not to say that rock music is dead because it's not. It'll come back around once somebody either grabs a a, a new style or a new idea to run with, or perhaps, you know, just like it did towards the mid to the end of the 80s, this electronic music or this synthesizer-based music will run its course and the organic sounds will once again sound fresh because we've stepped away from them for so long. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, a lot of things are cyclical and who 
who's to say that music isn't one of those things? And I feel like even now... Oh, it most certainly is. Well, right now, I think I said this last week, but a lot of alternative music to me sounds like a melting pot of so many different types of styles of music. And uh, kind of looking back at the 80s, it's, it's funny to see how we've come full circle. Well, you're a 1975 fan, right? Oh, yeah. Love the Tell me that the beginning part of If You're Too Shy, Let Me Know doesn't make you immediately think of 1980s stuff like Flock of Seagulls and Air Supply. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that's 100% the intent of it. It's, it's to pay homage to the artists that came before them, but them also saying, hey, look, we built upon your foundation. We're evolving what you started. And I love when modern bands take that approach because you know, there's, there's too much ego involved in art sometimes where you feel like you're, you're trying so hard to reinvent the wheel when it's not necessary. You can just make that wheel a little smoother or you can make it ride a little bit differently. Add your touch, you know what I mean? And then maybe it does spin off into something completely new and different, but there, there's got to be a, a basis. And I'm talking for pop and commercial success. Obviously, artistically, do what you want to do. Do what's in your heart, do what's in your head, put it out. But if you're expecting commercial success of any kind, there's a formula and it's in place for a reason. And while you can make adjustments to that formula, you're never going to reinvent the wheel as far as the music industry is concerned. At least that's my opinion, yours can vary. So 1981, uh, back to our list. Um... Let's go with Depeche Mode. I brought them up at the top of the show. Their single, Just Can't Get Enough, broke through. I play it uh, at least once every six weeks in the vault on 95X. Because to me, while other Depeche Mode songs like Enjoy the Silence or Personal Jesus may be a little bit more well-known because of those coming out later in their career, at the time, Just Can't Get Enough was the first strangely dancey, dark song that kind of penetrated into the mainstream, at least from my perspective. That song's dark? Listen to the lyrics, man. See, all right, that's, that's my problem right there. When I listen to music, I don't hear the lyrics first. I hear the melody, and every time I hear that song, I'm like, yes, I want to get up and dance. Like, this is a great song. Turn it up. But, of course, it's, it, it's like typical me. It's a song that I like like that that's really dark and depressing. <laughs> but, but, but think about the fact that you wouldn't have a, an artist like Bastille without the foundation that Depeche Mode laid. That's a good point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then the cool thing about Depeche Mode is they had a lot of success in the early 80s. They had a lot of success towards the end of the 80s. And then they reinvented themselves in the 90s and became contemporary once again. And, and again, you see so many bands that originate overseas that have a, a completely different understanding of how to approach the music industry. And at this time, the UK was churning out five to one the hits that the States was. By, by, you know, and it's one of those things where I, I always wonder, like, you know, what had happened if we had never seceded from the UK? What would our music musical lineage be? You know what I mean? Because, like, I have so many artists that are near and dear to my heart that are Britpop bands, you know, whether we're talking about getting into the late 80s and Stone Roses or the early 90s with Oasis and Blur. Um, there's just a, a definitive feel about these UK bands um, that, that always seems... Like there's an urgency to be relevant and it always seems to really happen for them. And during this time period, uh, there were some fantastic examples of that. And for me, Depeche Mode being one of them that really kind of took 
what Joy Division and New Order started and and took it in a direction where it was accessible. You know what I mean? Like, Would you say Depeche Mode was one of the pioneers of alternative music? Most certainly. I I think that if there was uh, a Mount Rushmore, they would most certainly be in contention to be up there with Lou Reed and David Bowie. Okay, so another song that I thought was pretty noteworthy was the uh, Genius of Love by Tom Tom Club. And I feel like I've heard that song in a lot of things. I went back and looked. That song has been in several different commercials over the years, including uh, most recently Target. It was uh, covered by Tinashe, uh, who I actually met a few years ago. Uh, and it was also in a 2002 Kia commercial. Really? Yeah. The, See, thing, I, the, the things you know. I haven't, I've yet to catch any of the syncs. I just know the song from it being on the radio constantly when I was a kid. Yeah. I, for some reason, I feel like we, there was one song we did last week um, that was like in a, a Swiffer commercial. I don't even remember what the song was called. It was like, do the Swiffer... I don't know, but I feel like a lot of these songs that we're going to touch on have been in commercials that I remember growing up oh, watching. Oh, you have no as a kid. idea, man. And, and honestly, like once you want to train yourself or train your mind or get familiar with these songs, when you start watching these older movies, you'll start noticing these songs more and more. Like light bulbs will start to go off. Yeah, yeah. So, what are some other noteworthy songs you think from 1981 that really define that year? Uh, for me, I mean, it, we, we started out at the beginning talking about Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, I think it's important to, to bring up the Go-Go's because they were one of the first all-girl groups uh, that, that really took off and sort of permeated the, the mainstream. And while the Go-Go's um, you know, are a point of contention with, with punk fans the way Blondie was back in the day because they did kind of come from the punk scene, which was more pop oriented at the time especially um during this era where punk and disco kind of had a couple of babies and one of them was blondie uh the go-go's had uh, an all-encompassing sound four part female vocal harmonies pop hooks and of course uh you know just that that legendary look you know whether it's all four of them water skiing on the cover of the album or the video for our lips are sealed which was uh, one of the most iconic songs set the table in, in the next couple of years for artists like Madonna and Cyndi Lauper, which then, of course, made way for the later artists, whether it was Whitney Houston or in modern days Lady Gaga. Um, for me, like, you, you really can't go wrong with the Go-Go's. It, it's up-tempo. It's fun. It always makes me think of summer. And their hit, Our Lips Are Sealed, was actually uh, co-written by Terry Hall. Uh, the singer of the specials who also make my list for their single ghost town. Because if you go back to 1981, uh, they were one of the first real political bands. Now we talked about the dead Kennedys last week, but the dead Kennedys were an American band and the specials come from the UK. And this song in particular, ghost town specifically addresses the issues of urban decay, deindustrialization, unemployment and violence in the inner cities, because there were so many riots in British cities at this time. Uh, a lot of it over race, a lot of it over classism, and the specials being African-Americans living in the UK and, and doing this two-tone. I mean, the specials, without a doubt, started ska music, had a big impact on the world of reggaetron going forward and all the hybrids of that music. Um, they most certainly set the table for everybody that came after them, whether it was the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Real Big Fish, or even some of the bands that just had Scottish elements like Sublime. 
without the specials, none of those artists would have had the inspiration to do anything. And then what would have happened in that summer of 1996 when ska was the biggest thing in the world for about four weeks? So who were the specials? Uh, the, the specials were uh, a British UK band that was essentially the, the very first ska act. Um, they've been around forever. I mean, they do, uh, they've done different things over the course of the years. Uh, they started in, I think it was like 1977 or 1978. It was Terry Hall. It was Neville Staples. Um, in later years, it was great because with all these horn players, they had such a, at the time, ska was considered jazz. So in later years, they did the Spatial AKA Orchestra which was their version of taking ska into a jazz world. It's a difficult <laughs> listen if you're not a fan of ska music or jazz. And I'm not really a, a huge um, jazz guy, but there was essentially like there was, all right, so there was the mods back in the 60s. And that, you know, the pork pie hats, the mohair suits. And then in, in the 80s, the specials came along and kind of flipped everything on their head. Uh, because they presented that sort of rude boy style with their way of dress and the way they acted on stage and the performance. But ultimately, they took rock steady and punk and put that at the forefront of these arrangements, which really, to me, started an entire new style of music. And I mean, the general consensus is the specials are the, the very, you can point directly at them and say they started ska music. Hmm. Dixon, uh, I have to say to you that um, I want to thank you for making this a safe space for me. And the reason why I say that is because uh, I don't know a lot of these bands. And usually when I say that something like, who are the specials? The reaction I get back is, you don't know who the specials were? And that it leads to a five-minute conversation about how you work in radio, you don't know who they are. So I got to thank you for making it a safe space for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> That's what my generation needs to understand. And I'll be the first one to admit that I am 1000% a music snob, but there is no reason to talk down to anybody about not being aware of a certain band, especially if it's some weird niche thing. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't be cross at anybody who didn't know who Moon Hooch was. They're one of my favorite bands, but they're just this little band out of Vermont that, that plays like three piece horn stuff. And it's weird crossover EDM you know, like, why, why, why wouldn't I just extol the virtues of my favorite band to you instead of making you feel dumb for not knowing something obscure? Now, if you were to come to me and say, like, uh, who's you two? Then we would have a little bit of a different conversation. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where, like, ultimately, I think Generation X, uh, because we had such a glut of amazing music in this time period that we were all formative, that we, that we connected to it in such a way that we just assumed it because we did, everybody after that did. But technology changed that with streaming, you know, things like Napster and LimeWire and now with streaming services, you don't have that personal connection because you don't own the music anymore. You know, like when physical, when physical media kind of went down the dumper, so to speak, uh, I think that's when my generation, which is Gen X, got a little upset at the millennials and Gen Z and started the, the, the crap of talking down. In, in just being you guys bags. are still up, upset at us well, i don't know what you're talking about i'm not mad y'all help me like make my phone work and <laughs> teach me how to use zoom yeah i i think there are a few texts i've gotten from you about uh fixing your phone i think i actually did fix something in your speaker once you did I'm pull something out of my speaker once we won't talk about that we won't though. talk we won't go there 
Um, but in any event, so uh, 1981, uh, you got any more like huge noteworthy songs that really define that year? Well, there, there's definitely one uh, that I would like to talk about because it's one of my favorite songs of all time. And again, this is probably going to take people by surprise. Now, this band didn't really have much in the way of commercial success. And back in 1981, this song was not a hit single in any way, shape, or form. But because it was used so frequently in the 80s by Burger King and Heineken in television commercials and then was used uh, in Reality Bites, the Ben Stiller went on a Ryder movie from 1994 and then made its way back through Rock Band, Tempted by the Squeeze is now considered one of the top 10 songs of 1981 despite the fact that it never charted, did not go gold in its time period, and has only since gone platinum due to streaming services and the ability to buy single songs for like 99 cents. Yeah, no, that's a really good song, and it's really surprising to hear you say that. Yeah, I, I love anything that has, I mean, I, I grew up with that 70s and 80s AOR style of just laid back West Coast-ish style pop music. And anytime I hear an example of it in modern music, a lot of times the, the first thing I compare it to is that song by The Squeeze. And then nobody knows who The Squeeze is. And they don't know that that song's called Tempted. And then you play it for them and they're like, oh. And six out of 10 times, somebody's gonna be like, I thought that was Don Henley. It does sound a lot like Don Henley. I'm a huge Don Henley fan. I love the Eagles. Mm. I know a lot about them. I know you don't really, uh, you're not a, not a fan, fan, man. What's, you they know, were that, the Dave Matthews band of their time. All right. Huge, since, but not I, for I everyone. And why is the Dave Matthews band now becoming a punchline? I like, I'm not a huge fan. I don't really care either way about Dave Matthews, but you know, since when did that happen? Oh, I'm not using Dave Matthews as a punchline. For me, they're a parallel line. They're, very popular music for a middle-class white audience that isn't universally liked, but is super popular within its own lane. You but know what I'm so saying? Good. I'm just saying, I, I don't think the Eagles are that fantastic. All right. I'm going to say one thing. I'm going to say one thing. You love harmonizing. The Eagles do. are really, really good at harmonizing. And it just blows me away that you don't like it. To me, and again, if you're an Eagles fan, not the Philadelphia Eagles, the band, the Eagles, uh, just understand that, that for me, like, while I do like a lot of like straight down the middle pop music, for me, the Eagles always felt manufactured in, in, in sort of artificial. I don't know, man. They, really? they, they struck me as the saccharine to the sugar that was Fleetwood Mac or any other band from that era. I, I just, it, it just felt too contrived to me. Like I, I don't like even after hearing hotel California for the umpteenth million time, like I still can't walk away from that feeling like there was any real connection from Henley or any of the other songwriters on that. You know what I mean? I, I, I feel like they're, they're good like storyteller music you know what i mean and that's just not my bag like i'll go on record and say that i'm not the biggest bruce springsteen fan i love almost every artist that cites springsteen as an influence but it's hard for me to go back and listen to things like the river or like born to run in its entirety it, it's just it's taxing there's no there's not a lot of tempo there's just not the things that i personally love about music which are you know just bombastic dynamics and 
uh, rhythm and hand claps and weird syncopated parts. And like, I, I just, for me, the Eagles are like a deli turkey sandwich on white bread with mayonnaise. <laughs> and while that might sound delicious to a lot of palates, it's not super exciting. You know what I mean? Like I, I need, I need some sriracha mixed into that mayonnaise. I need some Cajun spices pressed into that turkey. Throw some raw red onion on there. Like, wake me up. Get my taste buds excited. The Eagles don't do that. You're very good at making analogies. And while I disagree with you, I totally understand where you're coming from. And that is one of the cool things about music. And some people would argue me and try to fight me on this, but I don't care. One genre of music isn't better than the other. That's your opinion. It doesn't really matter what you think. Everybody has their own style and type of music that they really love. So you're really not right or wrong in the end. Uh, so I had a few favorites from this list. Um, obviously, I got to throw in the U2 because I'm a huge U2 fan. Uh, Gloria came out in 19, or was a big song in 1981. So that was right at the top of my favorites list. Uh, I also really loved Primary by The Cure. Uh, now, lately, before we started this podcast, I've been going back and uh, kind of absorbing a lot of music from The Cure. Uh, and that is one that just right off the bat, I just absolutely love. Yeah, The, the Cure's early work was, was really, in, in my opinion, kind of overlooked. Uh, as soon as they started seeing like real commercial success at radio with uh, whether it was, you know, pictures of you or love song or in later years, like Friday, I'm in love. Uh, people sort of, I don't want to say boxed the cure in, but I think may have started taking their early work for granted. Uh, the cure were one of those bands that, that stumbled upon their own unique thing very early and were very brave to release the early records they did, because I think the cure was very much a work in progress at this point. Uh, and, you, and if you listen to the Cure albums in chronological order, you'll get what I mean by saying that because they were sort of developing it as they went, you know, and that's not to say that the early records were bad, but for me, I love it because it's an insight to what their early influences were. And then you can tell as they got turned on to newer things, uh, different influences, their music grew as well until it became its own ubiquitous thing where like they started influencing bands. And to me, The Cure is by far uh, right up there with, with Bowie and Lou Reed on uh, that, that Mount Rushmore of alternative music. All right, so Dixon, going down the list, uh, we got a couple more here. What's another one that you think is really noteworthy for the year? For me, I got to go Duran Duran. I mean, Planet Earth, Girls on Film, Careless Memories, these are iconic early Duran Duran song. Now these came from their self-titled album back in 1981, which actually didn't do well in the States until after their sophomore album, Rio, reached number 10 on the Billboard Top 200. Now they spent 87 weeks on that Top 200, which at the time for a UK band that was, that was making what would be considered pop rock music, that was unheard of. Now they had a lot of success in the UK with the initial uh, release. And while Planet Earth and Girls on Film did do well here in the States. It wasn't until after 83, after Rio, after they had already broken in 82. Um, and to me, man, that, that, early, that, that early Duran Duran really impacted so much going forward. In the, early, in the early days, I don't think they got a lot of credit for essentially being a blueprint for NXS, who in later days, in my opinion, set the stage 
for so many cool things, whether it was, uh, you know, Trent Reznor's ability to set a throbbing mood with nine inch nails or uh, in, in modern times, I, I, I can't imagine that there would be a Capital Cities or a Walk the Moon uh, without the, the early influence, whether they know it or not, of Duran Duran and a lot of the stuff that they laid down in the early 80s. And then uh, if we're going to round this out, we would be remiss without mentioning, mentioning Generation X, the original project of a gentleman that went on uh, to a lot of fame, uh, most notably in The Wedding Singer, starring Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, Mr. Billy Idol. Uh, the, the track was Dancing With Myself. It was initially released in the UK under the moniker of Generation X. When Billy split from Generation X, they dropped Dancing With Myself in the States. Uh, it was credited to Generation X uh, from the research I've done for about the first three or four weeks that it was out. And then uh, there was a, a rash decision made that was it's Billy and Billy's on his own and he's Billy Idol and here we go. Wow. That, I had no idea that was Billy Idol. Cause that I, yeah. we met, we, we just merged here Dixon because dancing with myself was on my favorites list for this year. So oh, I really, cool. I loved that song. So I guess I could say I'm a Billy Idol fan now. I had no idea. Yeah. And, and again, Billy Idol was loved and adored through every generation because I think he influenced much like Iggy Pop did unintentionally uh, a, a cultural spark uh, whether, it, I mean, it ne wasn't necessarily musically because I don't know, I mean, Billy Idol obviously had some, some huge hits. The, the White Wedding cover uh, was huge for him and uh, everything, everything else that he, he's done along his career has, has been pretty fantastic. But I think a lot of people forget that Billy Idol had a little bit of a resurgence in the late 80s uh, with a song called Cradle of Love that played side by side with the Motley Crues, the Poisons, the Slaughters of that era. And he fit in perfectly. So here's a guy that in the early 80s was considered alternative. By the late 80s was lumped in with hair metal. And then in the early 90s, when uh, essentially Adam Sandler got his hands on him, he became this cultural figure based on, uh, you know, the, the 90s movie being an 80s retro movie. And, uh, you know, the, the Wayne's World crowd dug him and then he became... Um, you know, top of mind again with Adam Sandler. And that seemed to continue to happen because most people cannot name anything other than Lust for Life from Iggy Pop or the Stooges. But I know an awful lot of people that wear Iggy Pop t-shirts or have branded merchandise or carry his aesthetic forward into what is now the modern age. So uh, Billy Idol, I think, uh, you know, influenced as many musicians as he did pop culture icons. I mean, think about the fact that he and Guy Fieri have the same hair. That's not an accident. It's really not an accident. You know what I mean? And like those two are friends. So it's just, it's one of those things where you see all of these strange connections as time progresses, but uh, all of these things have influenced all of the things that we know and love now. And that's what this podcast is all about. So I think that's a good place to stop for this week. Uh, 1981 is the year uh, for this episode of the Roots of Alternative podcast. Now, again, if you go up to 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative, you can see our entire, uh, well, our entire catalog of previous episodes, which in this case, there's only one. Uh, or if you're listening uh, now and we've already done 10 episodes, you can go back and listen to the ones after this. Uh, each page on that section of 95x.com will feature the uh, entire playlist of the songs that we're picking from 
uh, from uh, that particular year that we're talking about. So next week, Dixon, it is 1982. You got any excited? Yeah, you sound really excited for it. Uh, 82 was another banger of a year. A lot of the artists that we covered this year continued their success into 82. So we'll see a lot of second, third, and fourth singles from these bands. Uh, and I don't want to give away too much, but I also want to mention that if you have any feedback, you have any questions, you want to say hi, or just reach out and touch us digitally, uh, email me directly. It's dxn at 95x.com until we can get a working email address specifically for the show. So feel free to let us know what you think of this, whether you love it, whether you hate it. Uh, just don't send photos because I get creeped out. <laughs> I'll send you all the photos, Dixon. Mm. All right. So, uh, Dixon, I will talk to you next week. All right. All right, Jack. Thanks, buddy. All right. And thanks for listening. This is episode two of the Roots of Alternative podcast for 95X. Mm-hmm.